Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Hello, my name is Molly McDonough. I'm a communications and media professional and I'm always eager to explore more effective ways to meet the legal needs of underserved populations. And I especially enjoy speaking with leaders and innovators in this space on this podcast. Today, it's my great pleasure to host this episode of Talk Justice with a name and a voice many of you are already familiar with. Jason Tache recently left as co-host of Talk Justice to launch an exciting new initiative at Georgetown Law. We'll get the rundown on his new Judicial Innovation Fellowship, a novel program he launched in November to deploy experienced technologists and designers to state, local, and tribal courts. Welcome back to the show, Jason. Thank you, Molly. It's great to be back. I'm so excited to have you here. On this program, we talk a lot about innovation and access to justice, and your new program tackles a pretty complex issue at a, at a core point. Uh, it's very infrastructure. You're really taking on a pretty tall task of modernizing an extremely dated system designed to be operated essentially in person and by experienced lawyers. And before we dive into the discussion about the fellowship, I just want to say congratulations for continuing to make access to justice a major focus of yours and finding a way that I hope will affect change with a pretty holistic approach in mind. As you know, I'm a big fan of yours, so wanted to say congratulations. I appreciate it, Molly. Thank you very much. Um, can you talk a little bit about your approach with the fellowship? Sure. So uh, there's there's a whole team of us uh, behind it working on this. So Tanina Rustain at Georgetown Law is one of our co-founders and uh, just been indispensable in regards to navigating the whole world of, of setting up an organization, a startup functionally within the law school. Jamison Dempsey, Miguel Willis, uh, Corey Zarek are all a, a part of this team that when they brought me in, uh, they said, we have this idea. We want to build, we want build on this idea that we've seen in the executive and the legislative branches and bring tech and design talent into the judiciary, which I thought was a great idea because it's, as you pointed out, it's an infrastructure play. It's about bringing expertise and skills into courts that usually courts are struggling to find either because states have cut budgets over the last decades for courts or it's hard to compete with private industry salaries in the tech sector and so we're looking to come in and fill that gap by basically playing role as a matchmaker between courts that are trying to improve their transparency equity and efficiency and the technologists that want to be able to use their skills to help courts be able to level up on the work that they're already already trying to accomplish. So I you, you know I, as I was reading through a lot of your materials and and uh, the announcements and some of the articles about it I really had to wonder why this hasn't already been done before. It's set, it seems to be so much common sense that this would be a core focus and yet here we are this is a first of its kind initiative and wondered if you could address that a little bit. First of its kind in the courts, but as I mentioned, not the first of its kind in government, right? So we've right. seen organizations like uh, Code for America bring technologists and designers into local city government. Uh, the Presidential Innovation Fellowship is doing something similar for federal executive branches. Tech Congress uh, is bringing technologists into Congress 
Digital Core, Fuse, Coding It Forward, all of these groups have been out there for around a decade. And so we're very much building on their experiences. Uh, the folks in these organizations have been unbelievably welcoming to me, a complete outsider, uh, trying to figure out how to run a program like this in the judiciary. And I think one of the reasons why we haven't seen it in the judiciary yet is one, an issue of timing. I don't think this program could have been successful five years ago because I don't think there were as many courts then as there are now thinking about these issues actively. And I think the pandemic has a large part to do with that. Obviously, courts had to go virtual and digitize a lot of processes that courts were being recalcitrant about digitizing before the pandemic. And so I think like so many other parts of our society, those trends that were already happening pre-pandemic got supercharged when everything went virtual. So I think that's a big part of it. I think similarly, there's been movement building around court reform uh, that's primarily been criminal justice focused and, and focused on very narrow areas of court procedure, usually on the legal side of things, like how are people determined that they need bail or they need to be held pre-trial, for example. That's been a big part of criminal justice court reform. But there's this whole world of civil justice reform that I think is still on the come up in regards to building its political momentum. And I think that also has a part to what we've done, why we're seeing this happen now. Groups like Legal Services Corporation and others have really tilled the ground for a program like this to now have a chance to, to have a real impact and to have some staying power. So, you know, a major confluence of, of, events and proof of concept because of the pandemic um, all playing a, a role here. I, are you seeing that there are a lot of differences or similarities in government initiatives and uh, the justice system, or are there particular roadblocks or hurdles that you found in, in the justice system in particular? That will be an answer that continues to present itself over the next couple of years as we run the proof of concept uh, of this project. There's a lot of lessons learned that are translatable from the executive and legislative branches that I've been hearing from other people that have run similar programs. Like You need to focus on being bold and not disruptive because government institutions and bureaucracies by their nature are meant to resist change. And there is some benefit to that. It makes things more reliable. Uh, it means that there aren't random decision-making processes. Hopefully there aren't random decision-making processes in that. Uh, and so that very much translates into the court system itself. Probably more so, the courts are little c conservative institutions than some of the other branches. And courts historically, uh, as compared to the legislative and, and especially the executive branch, have never thought of themselves as a service agency. And more and more, they're being required to provide services. So not only... Is it about getting courts up to speed on technology, data, and usability issues, but also having helping them think about how they are a service provider within their confines of what the judiciary does. So I think those are unique. That that is a unique aspect to working within the judiciary that I don't think is has an obvious cognate when you're talking about the executive branches, for example. One of the things that, that you shared with me was this um, kind of a, a framework. And I'm wondering, one of the things that I think is a challenge for governments too and, and the courts is that they're so, they're individual entities and don't communicate necessarily. And I'm thinking of Illinois where every county <laughs> has its own system and that has to be just a major challenge. So is is part of what you're doing trying to at least come up with a, a uh, a framework that you can measure or that 
the courts can measure against to measure progress and consistency? Yeah, how we measure success, like what our KPIs end up being for this program is very much a discussion we're having. And I think it's going to be one of those things that will appear over the first couple of years of the program. Right now, our key metric is do no harm. Uh, we're a brand new program. We're trying to figure things out on the fly. And and that is our chief goal. But I, th- I think to pull back into your point around you know, each, each court of fiefdom and every judge a king or a queen, which creates this replicability and scalability issue, I think that's right. And each state we work with will be different depending on how it is organized and where power sits in that judiciary. But one of our goals and one of the things that we really focused on in the document that I shared with you, this roadmap that we'll be publishing early next year, is we did about 120 interviews with experts in courts, access to justice, government technology, fellowship programs to figure out where the common pain points were across jurisdictions, regardless of political considerations in that state or in that judiciary and think about what are the core capacities that we can help develop that can then be shared across jurisdictions. So we want to be, this is one reason why we won't be working in a judge's chamber. Like a fellow will never be assigned to a judge because that's too bespoke in regards to what solutions would be created by that fellow because it would probably only be beneficial to the way that judge judges. And that's doesn't have the scalability and replicability in mind. But when we look to issues around helping courts figure out what data it is they actually have, where it sits, what state it is in, and how it could be useful, that is a replicable process and set of protocols that is just as useful where you are in Illinois as it is to where I am in Oregon. And so that is what we're focused on as far as the project type is concerned to try to overcome, you know, the, the confederized nation uh, of, of state tribal territorial courts around the U.S. Yeah. So, so it sounds like you're already producing a ton of important information about what's happening, uh, what should be happening and what could be happening, um, and maybe uh, some red flags of what shouldn't be happening when you're talking about do no harm. How are you documenting this information and planning to share it? You you mentioned the fr- that you will be publishing the framework. I'm I'm curious, you know, how this repository is being built and managed. Yes, we will put the initial design document out, which we're calling our roadmap in in the early. Uh, 2023. And that will be kind of the first six months of this program and what we have learned and to set the floor of where it is that we're trying to go. And this is a document that we will come back to consistently and update and have new drafts as we learn, you know, what theories of change had traction in which, you know, an assumption was incorrect. And so we're very much taking that startup-y approach to checking our assumptions as quick as possible and then reorienting uh, uh, in a better way based on what we're what we're learning. Our chief tenant for the work that we're doing with the courts is, is one of them is transparency. That's going to be true for us as well. We'll be launching a GitHub page in 2023 as well for any of the documentation, uh, projects, code that come out of the fellowships so that they are public uh, and, and can be used. We're hoping that For example, we hope to place designers within uh, a court, at least one for the first year, and to have them go through the process with that court of, say, improving their e-file system to be more friendly to self-represented litigants, and then turning that into a protocol that not only can that court use taking forward after the fellowship, but also something that we can publish and share with other court partners that are interested in this work, but 
did not have the opportunity to have a fellow that particular year. So everything we want to be building on itself and we don't want anything to be so discreet or so bespoke that it lives or dies at a specific courthouse or with a specific you know, administrative office of the courts. Another aspect that I was thinking through is that there's so much low hanging fruit with things that could, could a technology experienced technologist, user testers, designers can uh, improve in a relationship. I'm wondering how you're selecting the work and the projects. Right. So that's a, that was a big component of the research that we did. And we're trying to focus on core capacity and infrastructure issues uh, that are seem to be at largest issue in regards to impacting self-represented litigants or, or any marginalized group that's going through the criminal or the civil justice system. And so some of those areas are uh, just, as I was saying about data and trying to improve what data collection looks like, even if a court has, for example, a policy towards equity and understanding what its impact of its policies and services are on different communities, if they're not collecting that data in a meaningful way, then they're never going to know what the impact is that they're having. So that is a great example of where kind of technical infrastructure in regards to data collection and use intersect with these larger societal goals that we have. Uh, similarly mentioned e-file and design is because I was speaking to a state court, a group of state courts leaders last week, and most states have adopted e-filing because of the pandemic for self-represented litigants, but the interface is terrible. I mean, lawyers complain about it and they have to use it all the time. So someone who does not have a legal background, does not do this for their job is definitely going to struggle. And so we were talking about putting a designer in there with them to go through the discovery phase with them to do you do the user interviews and then start creating prototypes and requirements and documentation so that when that court decides to build the self-represented litigant e-file portal, it's done so in the most thoughtful way possible that meets current usability and technology standards, as opposed to just relying off of what are usually pretty poor off-the-shelf vendor options uh, when it comes to usability, especially for SRLs. And then one of the last things, and I think one of the more exciting things that may take us a couple of years to get to, is a lot of courts that are well-staffed and have their internal tech teams are building interesting technology. There is a great court down in Miami-Dade where they have taken all of their data and they built a usable interface on top of it. So now you can actually pull up any of the documents related to your case. You can set up text message reminders on your own about what is going on in your case. And then there's a judge's dashboard as well that makes it easier for the judges to do their job. Other courts want this type of technology, but the problem is, is that when a court builds it for himself, all the local rules and idiosyncrasies are baked into the code. So I think that there's this opportunity for us to come in as this interstitial step between these courts that are building really useful tools and the other courts that want to be able to use that tool to take the code from the courts, sandbox it, pull out all of the jurisdictional specific stuff, make it modular, white label it, and then be able to hand that code off to other jurisdictions that then can add in their specific needs for whatever their rules are. And that I think is very exciting. And so that is one of the other areas where, again, I think one of our chief goals is to level up the work that's already going on in the space. And that's a great way for us to help innovative courts have a broader impact just beyond their own judicial district. So that's, that's kind of a, a future step for you, but I take it you're already identifying some of these spots where, where you know there's interest. What interest have you seen in, in your program in particular 
And have you adjusted at all based on some of that interest? Uh, we're we're constantly adjusting. <laughs> that that we're, we're never not adjusting at, at this point in time. And there's been uh, since we launched right after Thanksgiving, uh, the interest has been way higher than I anticipated. I didn't know what good was. Uh, I just kind of made up numbers that sounded hard but attainable to get to. Uh, and we blew past those in just the first couple of weeks. So our big metric right now is we're running webinars for court staff on January 11th and potential fellows on February 28th. So people can come ask questions and learn about what it is that we're doing. And the sign up, we already have over 320 signups wow. co- collectively for those two events, over a hundred for court staff and over 200 for the potential fellows. And I haven't started on my fellow outreach plan yet. So this is all just word of mouth and and opportunities like this. Yeah, the attention has been great. Does that say something, though it has to say something about the need and the demand for for something like this? Yeah, I think it shows that there was a latent, at a minimum, a latent demand there, whether or not people were paying attention to it or not. I think it was more obvious for us in this world to say the court, this is obviously a need the courts have. They're understaffed. They're under-resourced. We, th- that's all pretty well documented. But I think what's really interesting is this large cohort of technologists and designers that want to be doing something else with their career and are willing to take a year off uh, to do this tour of duty within the court system. I want to back up just a little bit and talk about kind of what your plans are, what your plans are for the cohort. I, you're, it's, your target is for the cohort to begin in September of 23. Correct. Is that correct? Okay. So can you kind of just talk through, you know, your plans? You talked a little bit about the webinars, you know, what, what are some of the upcoming plans um, as you roll this out? Yeah. To give a sense of scope of time, this whole program was a white paper in February of this year. And now like by next year, we will have people in courts. Like the, the turnaround that we have had from inception to reality has been wild. And so as I mentioned, the next big things for us is we'll release this roadmap publicly early in the year. We will host the webinar for courts as well as open applications for courts on January 11th. And then we'll do something similar for people interested in becoming fellows on February 28th. And we'll have a rolling application for both after those two dates kick off. And then the next big thing for us is to go through the recruitment in hiring process, which will take a couple of months. And then in September, the next big thing for us is we'll run a training at Georgetown for the fellows and the court partners to try to give everyone a a baseline of, of this new relationship that they're embarking on. And then they'll disperse to their, their courts, uh, which will be around the country. And, and do you have a, a target number that you're going for? We're hoping to have seven for the first okay. cohort. And those may be placed as teams, a couple of people, um, or it could be someone individual, uh, individually placed. Where that will all be figured out as we learn more about the people that are applying to be fellows as well as the types of projects that we'll be taking on. We talked a little bit about the roadblocks you faced already and what just struck me hearing you say it was how quickly this came together. I, I know you've been in this space for a long time, but that's lightning fast. <laughs> so um, is that because of some of these other models and your your drive? You know, what is it that kind of came together to make this particular project happen? I, mean, I, I think it's a number of factors. I think it's 
we were talking about the, kind of the movement building in the space, and there's a lot of good stuff coming out of the academic world, the nonprofit world, the for-profit world in a way that I think more people are looking at this now, as well as the pandemic brought the eviction crisis, which brought civil courts to a lot of people's attention that hadn't cared about these issues. Even if they did care about economic justice or racial justice, generally, they didn't necessarily see the courts in the role that they do have on those particular issues. So I think that's a part of it. I think because this is the fellowship model is tried and true in other areas of government, like our big thing was convincing the people that wanted to support this, that the courts are ready for something similar. And as kind of where this conversation started, I think very much that is the case now where that hasn't been the case previously. And then secondly, people wanted to fund us. Like we wouldn't be anywhere without the Ford Foundation, Schmidt Futures, the Pew Charitable Trust, uh, and others that have made this initial idea even possible um, to make sure that we have money to pay people. You know, technologists are not cheap, um, which is one of the challenges that we'll be facing in the future is figuring out what does sustainable look like uh, and, and what are the creative ways that we can pull money together to make sure that this program uh, has legs and can hang around. With a lot of that support, you had mentioned a lot, a lot of the reform aspects that have made headlines and and gotten any funding or, or a lot of attention involved the criminal justice system. I appreciate that you're taking a much more holistic approach and looking at the kind of, I think you use the the phrase, the plumbing of the courts <laughs> approach for this. And I'm wondering if if you're seeing continued momentum build for this holistic approach. I think so. And I, I think that's one of the challenges that we will be facing because the world, to your point, is, is very much built on this law school dichotomy of there's criminal things and then there's civil things and there's nothing in the middle that touches each other. But the reality is the shortcomings of both systems look very similar and they impact the same communities, the, the disenfranchised, the, the marginalized uh, in our communities. And so one of the things that we're trying to do, to your point, is that a lot of the things that we're talking about are the plumbing for technical issues, right? And the plumbing doesn't care what file type you had, which is why you're in the court to begin with, right? So when we're thinking about data capture, when we're thinking about text message reminders, that type of technical infrastructure isn't a civil justice issue, isn't a criminal justice issue, it's an economic justice issue, it's a racial justice issue, it's a gender justice issue, uh, but it's holistic. And I think that is what we need to be thinking about. And I, a part of this, because I come out of the criminal justice reform movement and then came to civil later, in my career. And just the issues are all the same. And the idea that like we all have different conferences and we don't hang out together and funding is treated as if there's like, they're two different, completely, you know, oil and water type ideas that can never come together is, is wrong. And we're hoping to help bridge that gap by showing that we can be building this technical capacity that benefits both the criminal justice and the civil justice reform movements. You talked a little bit uh, about, you know, stuff that's projects that you think are two, two years or so away. And you also mentioned that you're constantly evolving. So this is might be a little bit of a tricky question, but kind of in your ideal, what are you hoping this program will, will be able to achieve and how, how do you see it growing? I mean, the ideal is that within a few years, we have 
a sustainable funding model that allows us to have dozens of fellows in courts and to be able to do phased projects, right? Because like a a user researcher can go in and do the discovery phase, do the user interviews, write the requirements and prototype what it looks like, but they can't do the development side of that. So then what does it look like to have a multi-stage, multi-fellow approach to a project to actually build new capacity and infrastructure? On the other side of things, we would love to see courts not only adopt whatever the protocols are that the fellows are introducing to uh, their partners, but, and we've seen this on the executive side, for example, you know, once these fellows come through, the agencies decide that that's a capacity they need internally, and they create a job, they restructure an existing position to fit the types of skills and talents that were a part of the fellowship cohort. Uh, And that would be a huge step forward for us as well, to be able to show what the impact of someone like this is, as opposed to hiring another attorney, which isn't a scalable role. And that's usually our default in the space, whether it's legal aid, whether it's a public defender's office, the answer is more attorneys. And as a lot of the discussions that I've hosted on this podcast, and I know that you've been a part of as well, like more attorneys can be useful, but they can't scale. They can't be the sole way that we think about solving the access to justice problem. And so those would be kind of the hard and soft goals that we are looking to uh, see come out of this work in the next few years. So how can, you know, thinking back through some of those barriers or resistance pieces, you know, how can, I guess, practitioners help and follow what you're doing? Sure. Our website is judicialinnovation.org. If people want to learn more, then please do sign up for uh, one of the webinars. You know, there are four court staff and fellows ostensibly, but if someone from a legal aid organization or a public defender's office wants to join as well, they're more than welcome to. Uh, We're constantly looking to make uh, more inroads into more legal communities around the country to find partners that are interested in working with us. And if legal aid and public defenders are the on-ramp to that, then we're more than happy to, to have those discussions. Uh, we are also on Twitter at uh, JIF Georgetown, and you can follow all of our updates there. Similarly with uh, LinkedIn, Judicial Innovation Fellowship should find our page there. Uh, but yeah, judicialinnovation.org is uh, the quickest way to find all of our links, events, uh, publications. This is great. I'm I'm really excited to see this happening and see this launch and excited to see where this goes for you and the and the fellows and celebrate with alumni at some point soon. Well, I appreciate that very much and I don't think I, I mean I have to thank you. I would not have had the knowledge base that I have to do the work that I'm doing now but for the fact that you hired me when you were at the American Bar Association Journal to write about all of these issues and figure them out in real time. So this victory is as much yours for where we've gotten so far. So thank you, Molly. That was very generous. Uh, I'm a huge fan of yours, as you know. So uh, I appreciate that. Well, thank you so much, Jason. It's been great to have you. Anything else that you think we should mention before we close out? Um, Is that we are consistently looking for thought partners on these projects, people to help us think through uh, how to do this well. We're not going to claim mastery. Uh, We have a really good idea, I think, of where to start, but where we go is going to be very much contingent upon the community coming around us uh, and being supportive and helping us think through uh, both where we're getting things right, but also where we have our shortcomings. Uh, And so that, that will be critical for our success. I just remembered my follow-up question, whether uh, you are seeing any interest from commercial sectors, from for-profit, watching what you're doing. We've had some 
for-profit folks reach out and offer access to their platforms or their their services as a, a pro bono complement to the work that we're doing, which has been great. Uh, and so, so yes, uh, even some uh, venture capital firms have reached out that have impact investing alongside their for-profit investing, which I did not anticipate when we started this. But there has been a diverse cohort of, of interest uh, coming coming our direction, as well as from the tribal communities and, and territorial courts as well, which often get forgotten in the civil um, or when, within the justice reform context, we usually get too focused on on state issues. Um, but they're coming to the table as well and have really great ideas on on how we can improve access to justice in their communities. Yeah, I can also see that uh, uh, law schools are pretty competitive and you're the first out of the gate with this with Georgetown Law. Are, are you seeing other schools following closely? I'm sure they are following closely. Are you seeing any others looking to, to do something similar? Uh, not off the top of my head. I have heard that there is a version of this being developed. I don't know if it's at a law school for the public defender world to bring technologists into that office. But I haven't seen it launched yet, so I'm not sure okay. where it is in development. But Ooh, the idea is definitely percolating. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> That'll be fascinating to explore. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you, Jason. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Molly. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you, Jason, for joining us today. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed another episode of Talk Justice. If you like what you've heard, please rate us and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Until next time, happy listening. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.